What's going on, y'all? Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. Proverbs chapter 6. It's talking about being about our business. Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, God, we thank you and we praise you for being God and for being here with us and for being good. Help us to focus on you, God, to learn you, to love you, Father God, and truly allow you to shape us into what you created us to be, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And we're picking up with Proverbs chapter 6. We're talking about being about business. Now I'm in a dilemma. Because uh, we were supposed to do chapter 6 and 7 today. But things got a little off the rails a little bit in the first service. <laughs> so 6 took longer than what it was supposed to. So I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Do I need to keep everybody together? Now let's bust through it. <laughs> Catch them up. All right, we can do that. <laughs> so we're going to try to make it through 6 and 7. Starting in verse 1, 6 and 7. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 1, talking about being about our business. It said, My son, if thou be surety for thy friend, if thou hast stricken thy hand with a stranger, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. So this is his opening. It's the opening warning to the son. So if thou art surety, now the word surety there is if you are one who pledges yourself on the behalf of, or if you come to an agreement with, you make an allegiance with. And like I said, most of the modern translations and translators try to make it a cognate of being a cosigner, and which is a valid connection. It's basically, you, you come into agreement with, you make a pledge, but I think it goes beyond just cosigning. It's just a pledge or a con- contractual agreement that he's warning them about. And he makes this the parallel with still modern imagery of if you strike your hand with a friend. So making yourself surety for a friend and striking hands with a friend, it means the same thing in our culture. Basically, when you shake on a deal, so you bind yourself to something, an agreement. Like I said, the the cognate that we like to use in our days is being a cosigner. But I don't think we can just limit it to that. It's just binding or contracting yourself in a financial means, period. Said, thou art snared with the words of thy mouth, thou art taken with the words of thy mouth. So if you do these things, if you pledge yourself, if you co-sign, if you enter into this contract, he said, you set a trap for your own self, and the thing that has trapped you is the words of your mouth. So taken to be snared, all are parallel synonyms for being trapped. So the words of your mouth, your expression of this agreement has trapped you. And it gives us a warning, basically, of watching your words, watching your agreement, because you catch yourself up by the agreements that you make. And he puts us in a position of watching out. But if you find yourself in this position where you have made a pledge, where you're in agreement, where you bound yourself to somebody, it's mainly in a financial responsibility. He tell us what to do in verse three. He said, do this now, my son, and deliver thyself when thou art coming to the hand of thy friend. 
Go, humble thyself and make sure thy friend. Now this is a, a the pivotal sentence here. Said, do this now. Deliver thyself when thou art come into the hand of thy friend. Now, when he's saying when you come into the hand of your friend, so when you find yourself under your friend's responsibility, that you obligated yourself to your friend. When you come into his hand, deliver yourself from him. Get out immediately. And it gives the picture of urgency. When you find yourself in this predicament, where you have bound yourself to your friend, you're in his hand, and you snared yourself with your mouth, deliver yourself, get out quickly. And he add to it, it gives a picture. He said, go humble thyself and make sure thy friend. Now that humble thyself, we understand that. You put yourself low. It all could be mean lay yourself on the ground, push yourself down. Impress yourself against your friend. That's what he mean by make sure your friend. This is a word that can, in other places, is translated as harass your friend. In other places, it means it means strengthen your friend. It, it gives a picture of you putting yourself and pressing yourself up against your friend, and it gives a parallel picture to our, our modern understanding of it. Because when we, like I said, most of us, this is the first time we realize. That um, grown folks lie is when they get them debt collecting calls and they tell you, hey, tell them I am. And the normal idea is when you find yourself in the hands of your friend and you can't get out of it, you avoid your friend. Here he's saying, harass your friend. Press yourself up against your friend. You go after your friend. And it's a picture of you being the one that get on their nerves instead of vice versa. You press yourself. You pester them. You go after them. You don't allow this thing just to sit. You do what you have to do to get out of it. Which is like a crazy thought and an idea. Like how you can you harass people you owe? But you harassing them trying to get this debt paid. Being contrary to what we do. Because we owe people and we avoid them. Until they catch us sometime and Applebee's are walking out of the finish line. You have to make up that lie to explain, you know what I'm saying, how you um been on some hard times and I ain't forgot about you. Go after your friend. Press them. Then he extends this thing of what we're supposed to do. Still talking about the same thing in verse 4. Give not sleep to thy eyes, nor slumber to thy eyelids. So you don't allow yourself to rest. Don't give sleep to your eyes. Don't let your eyes close. Don't let your eyelids get heavy. You don't rest. You do what you got to do to make sure your friend, to pester your friend, to deliver yourself from this snare, from this trap that you bind yourself in. And like I said, this gives a completely anti-American picture of debt. Because in our world, debt is a blessing. And children are the burden. But he gives the thing is, you do whatever you do not to get this dead. And if you got it, you do whatever you got to do. You don't rest until you get rid of it. Don't give sleep to your eyes. Don't give slumber to your eyelids. Verse 5, deliver yourself as a roe from the hand of the hunter and as a bird from the hand of a fowler. You get poetic. But that roe is another word for a deer or a buck. So think about it. If you, you know, y'all, we look on the internet and watch crazy videos and on TV. You ever seen a trapped deer? A deer that's trapped, or a buck, or a moose, or something that's trapped. You you ain't never seen that before. 
You don't think, yeah. Ain't none of y'all ever seen that before? Y'all don't watch the National Geographic? Okay, you see. How was he acting? Just bounce around, moving. Y'all ain't never seen him caught on camera sometime. A deer run through the, through the store and he, you know, he slip around, he running all around, bouncing up against walls. <laughs> and, it, and that's this picture that he's painting here. How are we supposed to be in response to finding ourselves in this oppression or in this trap? You don't give yourself rest. You'd like a deer that's trapped. You run it. Like I said, you see that deal? They don't stop moving. They bucking. They kicking. And sometimes they even make the stuff work. Or they just kick because there is no rest for them until the point where they die. And it's the picture of you imagine yourself being a deer caught by a hunter. And the hunter got you by the horns. Ready to cut your throat. Deer ain't just going to sit there. He going to buck. He going to shake his head. He going to kick. He going to try to run. It's chaos. It's movement. It's Always activity. There's no rest until it's over with. And he's saying that's how you be like a bird caught in the hand of a fowler or a bird that's been trapped. The fowler is a trapper, trapper of birds, a trapper of fowls. So you act like a bird that's been caught up. You fight, you move, you do whatever you got to do to get out of this situation. Then he extends this picture and give us a little advice. He said, go to the ant, thou sluggard. And consider her ways and be wise. So go to the ant, thou sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. And we introduce to another main character that's going to be key for us for the rest of these proverbs. The sluggard. Uh, the slothful is another way it's going to be translated. So this is the person who is apathetic about business. It's the opposite of the diligent man. It's the person who just, it is what it is and just going with the motion. They, they have no motivation. They have none, no get up and go about them. It's not necessarily the one who don't do anything. It's the one who's not really, you don't pay close attention to, to his business. He's, he's, he's not diligent about his business. He's just apathetic. He's just going along with the flow. Nah, don't got much effort. Don't got much energy. He just do what he do. That's the picture of he, he getting here. So he's advising this slugger. To go to the ant and consider her ways. That consider means to pay attention to and to reflect on. So think about the ways of the ant. Pay attention to them. And he's using this as a parallel to the sluggard. In verse 7, said, which having no God, overseer, or ruler. So he gives us three things that the ant does not have. A God, an overseer, or a ruler. A God is somebody who comes alongside to instruct. So said so the ant don't have a guide. And it's the picture of you never see an ant with like a personal trainer. Like an ant that's down there like, hey, saying we're we going to make it all the way up this garbage can because we get down there, it's some, it's some chips in there. <laughs> so let's go. Don't don't stop. Let's keep the chips. Let's keep moving. Let's bring them on out. Let's bring, you can break that chip up. Break that chip up. It's like that guy is not there with the ants. There's no guide. It's like there's no overseer. The overseer is what we would think of as a, as a, uh, like a supervisor. There's nobody breaking down the plan for, for the ants. It's like when y'all go out, y'all stay close to the wall and be real careful now because there's some folks in there that got that spray. But if you can make it round to corner and you can make the right, there's going to be some little bit of crumbs all over the thing. Get them cheese nips and you bring them back. And nobody's saying, hey, 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 you getting off track. Come on back. 
Like nobody is overseeing this process to make sure all the ants got everything they need. And like there's no ruler. There's nobody in charge of it. So there's nobody watching over them, making sure they'll do it. Ain't nobody alongside of them trying to motivate them to do it. And ain't nobody in charge of it getting done. But he said, what does the ants do? They provide their meat in the summer and gather their food in the harvest. The ants have the diligence and the foreknowledge without anybody telling them, without anybody guiding them, without anybody encouraging them to continuously work to provide their meat when it's time for it to be stored up. And it gives the picture of they take care of their needs now and they take care of their needs for the future. They have an eye to work continuously to make sure they got what they need and they have an eye to work continuously to make sure they have what they're going to need without anybody telling them. And he's given the parallel picture and the thing that he want to draw is, so what's your excuse? Because he's talking to a father that's been instructed by a son. So you got somebody to give you instructions. And it's all connected to this one command of if you find yourself being a surety for a friend, deliver yourself. An ant can take care of his needs and make sure he got what he needs so you can work. You don't need to rest. You don't need to give sleep to your eyes. You need to be like a doe, a deer. That's trapped, continuously working. And it's that picture of pay attention to the ant. Like I said, you watch them. I don't know if y'all done watched them before. Then sometimes you see them going up and down that garbage can. Like, they don't ever stop. One coming, they bump against each other, keep on going. It's, just, it's, just, it's motion. It's like that's the activity you need to have in delivering yourself from this situation. Then he's going to go into a negative example or a negative encouragement. Say, so how long would thou sleep, O sluggard? When would thou arise out of thy sleep? So we're asking a question. How long will you sleep? How long are you going to be at rest? How long are you going to be at ease? Yet a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep. So it, it gives this progressive picture just a little bit. You sleep a little longer. You rest a little longer. I'm saying you, you, you put stuff off a little bit longer. Folding of the hands to sleep, man, you taking a break. Like How long are you going to do this? Because you do it little bit by little bit. Then he gives this, what some would say is a very slippery slope argument in verse 11. That so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth, and thy want as an armed man. So the end result of a little bit of sleep, a little bit of slumber, when you slack off, when you get lazy, you like it, you enjoy resting a bit too much. So the end result going to be your poverty going to come on you as a man that traveleth. Now, the poverty here. Is a slightly different word than we than we connote when we think of poverty. Biblically, mainly through the book of Proverbs, there's two types of poverty talking about. What we understand poverty is the person who don't have any food, don't have a place to stay, just broke folks. Biblically, those people who are in that position because of social reasons, widows, orphans, or because of natural reasons due to famine and all that stuff, the Bible never condemns those people. The Bible never speaks negatively about people who do not have want, who do not have bread, who do not have refuge because of social situations. Like I said, they're widows, they're orphans. Things happen to them. They were the, the byproduct of war and calamity or people who was a result of famine. In those type of things, the Bible never speaks negatively about those. 
But this what it talks about poverty is one who comes to ruin. One who puts himself in a position where the things that he had, the thing that he possesses have been destroyed or messed up because of his neglect. And so that's the way that we can read it. So shall your ruin come upon you as a man that traveling. You're going to mess yourself up. You're going to mess your life up. You're going to mess your stuff up. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding out of the eyes to sleep. So it's not talking, like I said, we're going to point this out as we go forward. Because when it talks about those people who are in poverty, who don't have bread, who don't have a place to stay because of social situations or because of natural disasters, it always speaks favorably towards them. The Lord's eye is upon them. God cares for them. God pities them. He, he, he reward those who helps them. He hear their cry. He respond to their call. If you help them, you helping me. But the one who ruined their life because of neglect, the one who, who failed to take care of their business and bring hurt or bring harm on themselves and their family, the Bible always speaks negatively about them. And this is the guy that he talks about, the one who brings ruin to himself, the one who brings ruin and hardship to his family just because he's lazy, just because he's apathetic about business, just because of a lack of diligence. Y'all, you understand what I'm saying? So these are two different terms for poverty. So this gives the picture of people who we don't necessarily count as being poor. We think about some of our athletes and who who squander millions. And when we look at them, we don't think they're poor. I'm saying they're working at Starbucks or something. They feed. They got a place to stay. We don't categorize them as poor, but they have ruined themselves. They brought ruin to their lives because all the wealth that they gained, they lost it. They destroyed it because of their lifestyle. And that's these are the type of people he's talking about him. And when he talks about your poverty going to come, your ruin going to come like a man that traveled it. That man that traveled it is like a vagabond, a, a hobo, a panhandler. So it's like, just imagine, this going to be your poverty. Just like that man walking up the street to come knock on your door, come knock on your window and ask you for a handout. Your poverty going to be just like that man. Eventually he going to make it to you and he going to be asking you for something. That's the picture that he paints. Your poverty going to be just like that, oh, that traveling man who just goes from place to place looking for a handout. Your poverty going to show up at your door looking for your stuff. Then he amplifies the picture. No, it's going to be more than like a man that traveling. It's going to be like an armed man. So he ain't, your poverty ain't going to come begging. Your car poverty going to come with weapons saying, break yourself, fool. And it's the picture of all this goes back to a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to sleep, laziness, apathy, not being on your business, not taking care of your responsibilities. And we, and if we connect this all the way out to his original admonition, not delivering yourself when you bound yourself to your friend. This is the end result of it. You being saved into this obligation. You allowing this, this contract to sit over your head and not doing what you got to do. You just let it sit. You let, let it sit. And eventually it's going to come calling. And more than come calling, it's going to come on ready to take all that you own. Break yourself because you were too lazy to deliver yourself, not taking care of your business. Then he has, so it seems to be an interjection right here in verse 12. Says a naughty person, a wicked man walking with their froward mouth. Now that word a naughty person 
we would say this, well, what we call this person was a shyster. Like a, 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 a untrustworthy man, a, a trying to think of, of the good word, educated word. Shice is the best word I can come up with. So it's not necessarily naughty like Dennis the Menace naughty. It's naughty like, I don't know. Can't think of nobody. Like, can't think of a good character to make you get the picture. So it's not the one doing hard head stuff. It's one who's trying to take advantage of you. One who's trying to be slick. One who's just always coming up with a scheme to get over on you. That type of man. That's the naughty. And he connects it with being a wicked man. So the schemer, the shyster joker, the one who always trying to get over on folks, they are connected with being wicked. And he gives this picture, he says, I, I watch it. Let me see if y'all catch it. Said, naughty person, a wicked man, walk it with a froward mouth. He wink it with his eyes. He speak it with his feet. He teaches with his finger. Did y'all see the backwardness in that? Speaks with his feet and he walks with his mouth. He walks with a froward mouth. When you first read that, it don't seem funny. It's like walk, you know what I'm saying? He go around and his mouth is perverse. But then when you run to he speak with his feet. And he gives this picture that his mouth, his words are perverted. And his whole pattern of his life is set up by the perversion of his mouth. Then he winks with his eyes. That's the same. We understand that expression. Because we use the same thing. If I'm talking to you and I'm giving you a promise of what I'm going to do, then I look at Kenyatta and wink. What do you assume? Yeah, yeah I got some up my sleeve. Like, yeah, no, man, he, he lied. Now, what, what the real deal is, they, they got the same thing all the way back way here in, in 1000 BC. The same type of thing was going on. That's what he meant by the wicked with his eyes. So there's some insincerity. He deceiving you in there. He is some extra stuff going on. And it said he speak it with his feet. It gives the picture of of a man shuffling his feet. Like <laughs> a quick footed man. And it's the, the idea of you can't really tell what he has going on. His movements are shifty. They're not established. So what he really trying to do, you got to watch the way he moves to really know what it is that he's saying. Because there's a disconnect between what he's saying with you and what he's doing with himself. He shuffled with his feet. He's a swift-footed man. Then he teaches with his fingers. In the sense of, like for us, it's a, it, the picture would be me got my hand behind my back with my fingers crossed. They're, they're secret. They're coded things. So the whole picture is that this type of man this naughty man, this shyster joker, is a dude who you cannot trust because there's always something arterial and you can't pinpoint what it is he's really trying to do. What he's saying and what he's doing don't match up. How he's walking and how he's moving, you really can't keep track of it. What All these other things are going into what he's doing. It's a, a shyster joker. You cannot trust him. And I like the way he said it poetically because that gives you a picture of the man. Because when you read it on the surface, you're like, man, that's all backwards. You teach, you speak with your mouth and you walk with your feet. And that's the picture of this dude. He's all twisted up. He all backwards. But he's slick with it to the point where you don't recognize it. And in here, I see a dual warning because it seems like he just bring up this naughty man. And if we let it track, we get a dual warning here. Because all the way back, he told us, you go to your friend. 
You deliver yourself from your friend. You make sure your friend. But if you don't, and if you allow this process to drag all the way down to the process to the time where your ruin comes as an armed man, it could cause you to be this shysty person. That you can become that insincere person. That person that's scheming, that person that's trying to get over, that person that, 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 that your emotions are a movement. And we'd always have seen them people in a crunch, in a bind. Well, you feel that pressure, well, you gotta make up something. And we didn't talk to folks like that. We know they lying. Golly, I was gonna call you. But then, I was on the phone with my sister. And she talked and talked and she had, you know, you gotta understand, she had so much stuff going on and a really hard time just in all my family. Then my phone died. My charger broke. I couldn't charge my phone back up. And then she said, ooh, Lord, then the people at work, they called me. And I, I barely had any gas. I couldn't make it to work. And, and this story, they keep on bouncing, going on and on around. And the long story short, all they're trying to tell you, I ain't finna pay you your money. <laughs> but they come, they can't come right out and just say that. They got to do all this movement and all this manipulation to, to, to bind the whole thing up to try to create a situation where you can't really tell where this thing going. And they paint this picture and he's saying that this is a naughty person. So if the son take heed to this, if you don't put found in your business, you can find yourself caught up in this predicament. When you sit down doing your taxes, well, you can be tempted to forget to add some numbers on that thing. Or you can talk. I filed my taxes. I, I forgot that um I worked in, on on the side doing this and that and that and that. You know you ain't forget. <laughs> you refuse to check the mail because you ain't want the folks to send you your stuff. And it's this whole deal and it's the idea of if you allow yourself to make it to this thing, these situations can produce in you the type of activity that can make you this naughty man. This wicked man, this untrustworthy man, this shysty person. That's how people, like I said, we can, you can see people in, in churches and doing all this stuff. And they have financial problems and they have things and they've been doing good with the church finances and all that stuff. And when things get a little fun in their own life and it be, they start moving some stuff around. And they got to moving some stuff around because that pressure of life and them, them, them not being diligent in their own business put them in a predicament where they become this naughty man. And they're doing all this shuffling and all this moving to hide and cover up stuff because they intended it to give it back because it's just the one time. And that thing, you know, we seeing them on WSFA <laughs> with their head down in the camera flash. And be like, how how you do that? Man, he was just crooked. No, he was lazy. Which allowed that crookedness to be expressed because it put him in a predicament where life put that pressure on him. And that's why I say it's a dual warning here. So it's a warning to the son to identify that man. So if you get to this point, you might be that man. And it's also a warning to the son to identify that man so you know not to do business with these type of people. Because he go on and explain more about him in verse 14. He said, frowardness is in his heart. And he divides a mischief continually. He sow a discord. This man, when it get down to his heart, forget what he's saying with his mouth, forget what he's doing with his hand, what he's doing with his eyes and his feet, perversion is all that's in his heart. And continuously, it's a pattern of his that he's coming up with evil schemes. That by devising mischief, he's thinking about ways to get over on people. He's thinking about ways to bring hurt, to bring harm, to take advantage of people. That's all that's going on in his mind. 
and he sowed discord. He creates separation and disunity. This is the type of man that you don't do business with. And this is the type of man that you don't allow life to put you in a predicament that you be that man. Uh, y'all, you're tracking with me. Then it goes on and shows us the end result of this man. In verse 15 said, therefore shall his calamity come suddenly and suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. So his, his calamity, hardship going to come to him and it's going to come instantaneous. It's going to be something that just pop up and it says suddenly it's going to come without remedy. That word remedy means without bomb, without anything that can soothe the pain or take away the hardship that is. And when I think about this, I always have to talk. And it's one of these verses we have to think about and meditate on. Because we see people in our lives who seem to be successful in their wickedness. They get over. They scheme. They mistreat people. They, they, they oppress people. They take advantage of poor people. And they come up. And we see some of them live long lives and never get exposed. And as I think about this and think about life, those are the most dangerous ones. Because if life don't bring you to that point of brokenness, God's going to have to break you because God is the ultimate judge. And if you make it to the end where God breaks you, that's the worst breaking you can get. Because if you make to the final point where God pour out the, the calamity, ain't no return from that. And I see in this the parallel picture of what Jesus was talking when he was talking about prayer. Because he told the people, you go into your closet and you pray in secret. And the God who hears in secret shall reward you openly. But when you go out into the synagogues and pray to get praise from men, he said, you have received your reward. So the picture is God ain't going to reward you because men already rewarded you. And when I connect that with this, with, with scriptures like this, I get the picture. If we can go through life prospering in our wickedness and men, our natural life ain't just break us, that leaves the final retribution for God. And that's the most dangerous thing. And it caused me to thank God for the times where he humbled me and messed up stuff. And I thought I was going to live life a certain way. And God didn't make that whole thing. Didn't make no sense. And it just did not work. Because it shows the mercy of God that keep me from being on that final calamity. And getting that ultimate thing poured out. And that's the thing is that when we see the prosperity of the wicked, what we're seeing is... The destruction of the wicked. Proverbs keep telling us that over and over again. The thing that's going to destroy the wicked is their prosperity. Because that leads God to be the final one that brings down the retribution. Then he goes into, this is a different type of proverb we're going to run into a couple of times throughout this book. It's what they call it, a, a numbered, numbered poetry. And I, I just think about the old folks uh, down in the south talking when I hear it. Like what we would say. Like, man, you did something, like, it was crunk, man, about 40, 50 of them off up in there. And that's the type of, the way these numbered proverbs are, are structured. What you have is, is you, in some of them you get a number, then a plus one, and that creates somewhat of an emphasis. So in this one we run to, six things don't the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination to him. So it gives us a picture of a number like, dude, listen to the other like, man. God don't like that, man. Forget that. Oh, eight of them. God hate them. And he's going to run us a list of things that God does not like. And he amps it up. He's like seven things God 
completely loathed. They are an abomination unto him. And if you're going to run this list, and he says, verse 17, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. So a proud look, those who boast themselves over against other people. A lying tongue, everybody understand that one. And hands that shed innocent blood. Now this one, sometimes it can be taken metaphorically or literally. And it's hard with this one in the context to understand which one he's talking about. The metaphorical use of it sometimes talking about taking advantage of people. And you oppressing other people. In the literal sense, it's just what it says. You're killing people without reason. But the context don't give us enough. So hands that shed innocent blood. You live your life in a way that you hurt the innocent. Even if it means killing them. God don't like that. It's 18. Say a heart that devises wicked imagination. So a heart that think of or that devises, that come up with schemes that are wicked. Wicked schemes, evil schemes, schemes that are full of malice and badness. That God don't like that. And I like the way he wrapped that here because it ain't. He says it's the heart that God don't like. The heart that come up with wicked imagination. God knows our heart. That's what they always tell us. That God don't like that heart. And and it said, feet that be swift to run into mischief. A false witness that speaketh lies and he that sow discord among the brethren. So feet that are swift to run into mischief is those who, who get excited or hurry on to do something wrong. You can amp them up to, to go. What we would call a rider. You know what I'm saying? If folks, they're down. Whenever they're going, they, they, it ain't no shame to them. It ain't no big deal for them to go off into something. Now, in this, just thinking about this, he only lists seven things here that make God upset. But he repeats one of them twice. Y'all catch what, what it was? Anybody catch? What's that? Lying. He told, he told two different kinds of lies. Like a lying tongue, one who just tells mistruth, and he says a false witness. That speaking lies. That's one who slanders another one or who testifies wrongly against other people. And I have to think about that. Because to us, lying is just something that people do. It made the list of seven things God hate twice. And that's pretty deep. Like God don't like lying. Yay, seven are abomination to him. And if we add another, we're going to add lying again. So this lying and this truth telling thing is something that is really atrocious to God. God hates it. It's something that he loathes that makes him sick. Lying makes the list twice. And that shows you the contrast between modern American culture and true biblical tricks Christianity. Because to us lying is like, you know what I'm saying? That's just some down on the list. That's the last thing you need to work on. That's the one you can go to heaven saying that God ain't done with me yet. <laughs> God ain't done with me yet. But this makes the list. And if we connect this, because he just brings these six things in with the flow, because he shows no disconnect or discon- discontinuity between where he started and where he going. And if we look at all these things, you can end up twice on this list just based off your business dealings. And if we understand it, Hands that shed innocent blood that, that compounds it as being metaphorical to those who take advantage of the, the, the weak or those who are oppressors that can get, that can get a bit deep. Because if you ain't crafty or if you ain't diligent in your business, it forces you to be a liar and you can show up on this list twice. And the end result is bringing discord among the brethren, what makes the list. Because how many relationships have been ruined simply because of 
I loaned somebody some money. And they ain't pay me back. We all know somebody who don't talk to somebody just because of something happened to the money. It become a, a common American proverb nowadays. That you don't give money to who? Family. That's just a, that's our American proverb. You don't loan money to family. <laughs> Because the idea is these type of transaction does what? Create discord. It makes things hard. And so we can end up on the list three times if we understand, if we don't do business right, if we don't manage our, our business dealings and our contracts and our obligations right. Are y'all catching? That's, that's, that's a, that's, that's a bit deep there. And it shows us something that actually shows up in our world even now that shows up on this list. And we ain't gonna stick here. This is where I got stuck last time. So I'm priming myself. In our modern world, because we got foolishness going on in our world right now. Everybody going crazy. And they see this little American world. We've seen something that most of us ain't seen before to the scale that we're seeing it now. And the folks out there looting and, and vandals and tearing up stuff. These are people who are swift to run to mischief. They're getting excited to go out there and just to tear some stuff up. And that makes the list of the things that God hates. But we also see at the end of this list is the person who does what? So discord among the brethren. And we see the full circle of all the people who are the voices that speaking nowadays. Because we got people in places of leadership, we got people in places of authority who are getting upset because we supposed to decry all the looting and all the rioting, which we do because God hates. But God also hates all the responses and everybody that comes that brings discord, that brings separation, that separate the brethren. God hates those things. And so there's no difference between the, the old lady that ran the, the dark-skinned folks out of the church that forced them to have to make the AME church and the old man that was hanging them on the, on the, on the edge of the tree. they the same people. God hate both of them. And there's no difference between the folks on Capitol Hill spewing hatred and discord among the brethren and the people out there in the streets kicking windows in and burning up cars. God hate both of them. And if you're not fending for peace and trying to bring people together, you're not a part of the blessed people and which makes you you one of these people that God hate. And both sides of the spectrum are things that brings the hatred and the dis, the loathing of God. Because God don't like either land and one of them. Oh, you, you see what I'm saying? And so everybody that we see out there putting themselves up and decrying one, all on fall on the list. Even them same folks who lying, they make the list too. Falsely testifying to get their folks off, they make the list too. God hate them. We should be people of peace, we should be people of truth, and we should be people who are slow to put ourselves in situations where we're running into mischief. Just to rebel rouse and get stuff up. Because God hate all that stuff. Are y'all tracking with me? We're going to leave that alone. In verse 20 we go into the next admonition of the father and it talks about here the ruin of a great man the things that bring a great or that makes a great man 
the ruin is in there, but it's more than this ruin. It's things that makes a great man. And verse 20 said, my son, keep thy father commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thy heart and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. When thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light and reproofs are the instructions of the way of life. So these commandments that I'm giving you, bind them, keep them, always have them with you. The same encouragement he got over and over again said, when thou goest, they shall lead thee. So if you have them with you, when you go about your life, they're going to be before you directing you in the way to go. It says, when thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. So when you're at rest, if you got these things continually in there, they're going to protect you. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. When you arise from your sleep, they're going to be there communing with you. And it's the picture of these words always ever present with you in every aspect of your life being there for you. And the reason they're going to do these things is because they're a lamp and the law is a light and reproof of instructions are way of life. And it gives us a picture and it makes and it's expand the teaching of the father. We talked a little bit about it last time because in the Psalms, he tells us the word of God is what a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Jesus talks about the scriptures being the words of life. And now he talks about his commands, his teaching, the law. These are the things, the lamp, the light. Instructions are a way of life. So he's connecting what he's given to the things that, and, and as a, to what God is given. So these words are more than just mere words and they're more than just you being listening to an old man. These are the words of God. These are divine utterances. These are the things that, that show you life. By being a lamp means there's something that allow you to see where you're going, where you at on life. And it says them being a law, being a light is something that is shown all around you. So the lamp show you where you at. The light shows the full predicament or the perspective where you can see the whole thing. And it says they're a way of life. The instructions guide you and lead you to a pattern that produces life. And it shows us this full picture, but it also gives us a greater understanding of law. Because when we think of law, we just think of rules. But when he's talking about law and he connecting them with principles and instructions, law means the guidance or the teachings. That's more of an accurate translation of the word Torah. The teachings, the, the things that direct. So more than just principles and rules to follow, there's a, there's a pattern, there's a direction, a guidance that's connected in these things. And if you get them, they're going to keep you, verse 25, for from the evil woman and from the flattery of the tongue of the strange woman. So that messed up woman, they're going to keep you away from her. You're going to be preserved. You're not going to get caught up if you allow this law to lead, lead you and guide you and if you keep it with you. In verse 25, it gives us the warning. He says, lust not after her beauty in thy heart, neither let her, let her take thee with thy eyelids. That's the, that's the loan. So don't allow your heart to long to see her. That's lusting after her beauty. And don't allow her eyelids to capture you. So you just being caught in by what you see. And it's something that pull you in. Don't get caught up by that. Don't allow your heart to even want to just partake or see her. And I let you know, see, we're all the way back in Solomon time. These eyelashes ain't nothing new. <laughs> in verse 26 it said for by means of a horse woman a man is brought to a piece of bread and the adulteress will hunt for the precious life now that's just deep saying said by means of a horse woman a man is brought to a piece of bread 
you just crumbs. And the only thing that can reduce a great man to crumbs is a woman. That's deep. Now think about that. The means of a horse woman, a man is brought to bread. And this was a warning about watch your relationships. Because we all know somebody who life have been completely ruined and messed up because they married or dated or got in relationship with the wrong person. It's just, it's over with. And that's what he's pointing to here. Like, by means of a horse woman, man is brought to a piece of bread. Then he gives us this strange little um, proverb or saying in verse 27. Oh, and that end it said, the adulteress will hunt for the precious life. Like, she's not just looking for a relationship. She's on the hunt for life, the valuable pieces of life. That's what she's going to take from you. And that's the parallel to her reducing you to a piece of bread. This just ain't no little free relationship. This something that's going to destroy, and that's what she on the hunt for. Then he asked the question, can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? You can picture, can you get a torch and put it under your shirt and not burn yourself? The obvious answer is no. Say, can a man go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? So can you walk upon hot coals and then not scorch your feet? The rhetorical answer is no. And he parallels and says, so he that goeth into his neighbor's wife, whosoever toucheth her shall not be innocent. So just like you can't put fire on your chest and not burn yourself, and you can't walk on coals without hurting your feet, you can't commit adultery with a woman. And still find yourself as being an innocent person. Just like those things burn, this activity going to burn you. You're going to be found guilty. There's no way that you can do this and and be innocent. And in verse 30, he gives us this small little parable story that seems out of place. He said, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. So like, what they got to do with what he's talking about? Like, if there's somebody who's hungry, they're really poor, they don't have any means to feed themselves, and they steal to feed themselves, to satisfy their soul. So to take care of their basic living wants, if they go to steal, don't nobody hate them for that. That's what he's saying. Like, if you find a man, and he, you caught him in Walmart, and he's stealing apples, and you find out, like, man, I, ain't, I don't got a place to stay. I ain't ate in three days. I just was hungry. Like, you don't hate that man if he does that. But he adds, but if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. So even if you catch him out, the law still applies. You don't hate him if you do it because he's hungry. But if you catch him, the law still applies. But you don't look on, you don't look down on him. Then he makes the parallel to where his real point is. So you can see a man stealing. If you know that he's hungry, you're still going to apply the law, but you're not going to hate him for it. But whoso committed adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. On the contrast, if a man commits adultery with his wife, he's saying he lacks understanding. He's a fool. He's ignorant. And he that do it, you destroy your own soul. If you go Messing with somebody else's wife. Then he said, a wound and dishonor shall he get and his reproach shall not be wiped away. So unlike the man who's stealing because he's hungry, you don't despise him. This man who messes with somebody else's wife, 
Say a wound and dishonor shall he get. A wound, he's talking about a literal wound. He's going to get hurt. And the dishonor, his reputation going to be ruined. And his reproach, the way that people looked at him, they always going to look at him like that. His reproach, the disdain that he gets from the community. He said it won't be wiped away. And this is a part of the warning to the son. You don't get caught up with this woman. And if you mess around with another man's wife, ain't nobody going to let that go. You're destroying yourself. you ignorant. And you mess up. Now then the Bible gives what seemed to be like it goes a little too far right here. In verse 34 it says, For the jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore he will not despair in the day of vengeance. Like So the reason that is, the reason you're going to have that, that hurt and that, that reproach, because jealousy is the rage of a man. A man's jealousy is the thing that can take him over the edge. It's the thing that can make him an animal. <laughs> it says, therefore, since that's the case, that man will not spare in the day of vengeance. And they give the picture of the husband who catches the person messing around with his wife. When it's time to pay up, he ain't going to hold back. He's going to give you everything he got. Straight jabs. <laughs> <laughs> Come on a roll. <laughs> In 35, it gets a little bit deeper now. He said, he will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest him many gifts. And it's the picture that the man, you mess with his wife, ain't nothing you can do to satiate this brother anger. He coming after you. And in the day of vengeance, he going to get it. And in the end, it said, even though you give him many gifts, those many gifts, Talking about bribes, about money. You trying to pay them off. And we got to keep that in mind when we go up because that's going to be key to a, a very important church proverb that people messed up. And gifts here in the book of Proverbs is talking about bribing a person. Not talking about playing the piano for them. It talks about bribes. So no matter how you try to bribe him, you ain't going to kill his anger. And that shows us the response of a man and his love for his bride and that being the natural response for the man to be jealous. And I ain't going to get sidetracked like I did next time. I'm talking about these new age punks. There's a different kind of punk out there that let their wife go out and do everything and they talking about this is just our relationship. No. I ain't going to talk about that, y'all. There's a different kind of punk. If you can mess with a man's wife and he not get upset, that ain't no man. <laughs> Chapter 7, we bust through this one. Chapter 7 is a pretty decent narrative. And in here, he's going to pick up on this theme now that we was talking about. The warning at the end was what destroys a great man is this adulterous relationship. The whorish woman can kill him. But here in chapter 7, he's going to go pick up on this theme. He said, my son, keep my words and lay up my commandments with them. The keep my commandments and live and my law as the apple of thy eye. Well, he's the same admonition. Keep them, protect them, guard them. Say, my law is the apple of your eye. Some people take that to be the pupil of your eye. Just like you won't let nobody just stick their finger in the middle of your eye. Don't let nobody mess with these laws and these commandments. You protect them. That's how you treat my law and my commandments. Then he said, bind them upon thy fingers. Write them upon the table of thy heart. So tie like a, a string of memory. You tie it around your hand. Have something with you that make you reflect on these things. That make you remember them. Bind them, I mean, write them on the table of your heart. Inscribe them. Let them become a part of you. So you don't just remember them. You don't just protect them. You make them become a part of you. Write them on your heart. 
Verse 4 says, Say unto wisdom, Thou art my sister, and call understanding thy kinswoman. This is what this is how you need to relate to wisdom and understanding. Enter into a relationship with them. They are your family. That this is the reason why you do it. That they may keep thee from the strange woman. From the stranger will flatter it with her lips. So this is why you do it. So that they can protect you from this strange woman. And from the one that flatter it with her lips. Is he repeating the same thing from chapter 6. Now he get into what I call the nosy neighbor narrative. Now this is the nosy neighbor story. That take up most of this chapter. And verse 6 is why I call it that. Therefore, at the window of my house, I looked through the casement. Y'all see why I called the nose and neighbor narrative. He was peeking through the blinds. And this is what he saw. At the window of my house, I looked through the casements. He peeking out through the window, saying, Behold, among the simple ones, I discerned among the youth a young man void of understanding. So he's looking out in the street and amongst the young people, the simple ones, the naive, the ones who ain't been trained up, he saw a young man that's void of understanding. So this young man don't know nothing about life. He's ignorant. He's naive. And he was out there outside of my house. I saw him. Say so he was passing through the streets near her corner and went by the way of her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black, in the dark. So he painted a picture here. There was a man, young man, simple man, naive man walking in the street. And he's walking by the house of this strange woman, this adulterous woman, this woman that he wrote telling us to avoid all the time. It's black dog in the evening, low light, and he's passing through the street near the corner of a house. He went by her way. In verse 10, said, And behold, there met him a woman with the attire of a harlot and subtle of heart. So when he's walking in the street, he's going by the house of the strange woman. This harlot meets him out in the street. Says she got on harlot clothes, so she dressed all the way, showing all her goods in her business, and says she had a subtle heart. So she, there, was, there, was, there was some cunningness about her. She was a slick one. She wasn't naive like him. She was crafty in the way that she moved, in the way that she handled her business. Then he gives a description of this woman and pause the story. He said, she is loud and stubborn. Her feet abide not in her house. So there's a picture of this woman. She out there. She boisterous. And she she can't rest content in her own place. She always got to be out in the streets. Now she is without. Now in the streets. And lieth in wait at every corner. Is this description of this woman that he's saying caught this young man. So she out there. She loud. She stubborn. She hard headed. And she done can't rest content of her own house. He said now she is out there. Now in the streets. There's an emphasis of the fact that she's always there. She's in them streets. You need to watch out. Now she's out there. Now she's in the streets. And she lay wait at every corner. So no matter where you go, that woman is always around there. This strange woman. This woman in this hall of the tire that then caught this same young man. And now he go back to his story. Says, so she caught him and kissed him. And with impudent face said unto him, I have peace offerings with me. This day I have paid my vows. Therefore came I forth to meet thee, diligently to seek thy face, and I have found thee. I have decked my bed with coverings of tapestry, with carved works, with the fine linen of Egypt. I have perfumed my bed with myrrhs and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love into the morning. Let us solace ourselves with love. This is deep. This is her enticement. She's calling him out. 
saying, I, I came out here to meet you. She didn't just left church, y'all. Right. My sacrifice is with me. What do you mean by that? And a lot of times when they make certain meat offerings or grain offerings, they keep a portion. So you slaughter and you bring your sacrifices and the leftover and they can keep. You give some to the priest and you keep some. So she got a stake. She just left church. She's like, I came out here just to meet you. And she kissed him when she tell him. So I got my bed all made up. I just got my new, I just left. I'm saying Bishop Parker Furniture. Got a brand new bed. I got the Egyptian cotton sheep. See, we still got the same thing today. The Egyptian cotton, that stuff is soft. <laughs> when you get the high thread count, that stuff is. She, she got them same type of sheep. And she said, I perfumed my bed. So she got it smelling good. Got the essential oils going on up off of that thing. Got myrrhs and aloes and cinnamon. So she got the whole scene set up. And she enticing him, come let us have our fill of love. Let us solace ourselves into the morning. Same stuff. Now, they wrote, like I said, between 900 and 1000 B.C. when Solomon lived. Same stuff going on today. In short, she said, turn off the lights. <laughs> and light a candle. See, that's what she did. <laughs> Same thing. Ain't nothing changed. And she said, why? said, for the good man is not at home. He is gone a long journey. He had taken a bag of money with him and will come home at the day appointed. This is the end. Like, come on over to my house. My husband gone on a long journey. He said, he have taken a bag of money with him and will come at home at the day appointed. And that's a picture of he took things for business. And as a set time, he coming back. So you ain't got to worry about him coming on. I got the house all to myself. And it's a picture of drawing his brother in. And he, she's pulling him into this relationship and painting the scene that it's going to be all pleasure and you have nothing to worry about. We're going to have a good time. In 21, said, with her much fair speech, she caused him to yield. So she broke him down. She caused him to bend. She caused him to give in. With the flattering of her lips, she forced him. So she broke this brother Pulled him in, caused him to give in with the flattering of her lips. She propelled him. She pushed him in. All just with the sweet speech. Said he goeth after her straightway as an ox goeth to the slaughter, as a fool to the correction of the stocks. That's deep. The picture don't look so pretty now. This is the father speaking. Said he goeth after her straightway. He don't hesitate. Once she break him down, he go on in. And he said he going like an ox to the slaughter. He see himself marching towards a night of good time and good favor to enjoy himself just to have the nice company of a beautiful woman. But what the father see is somebody marching to get their throat cut. He's like a fool to the correction of the stocks. It's like a man that finna be locked in and beat in like what they did Jesus on the Passion of the Christ. That was the correction of the stocks where they lock you in and they beat you. This is what the father sees. It's like this is what his marching is going after. He destroying his own soul, but he don't even realize it. And when he gonna realize it in verse 23, it said till a dart strike through his liver, and as a bird hasteneth to the snare, and know it not that it is for his life. So there's gonna be a come a time where something gonna pierce him to death. And he's just like a bird, heading, flying fast to a trap, and don't know. 
that the flight that he's taking is for his own life. He don't realize that he's giving up all of himself just for this one little thing, just for this moment. And now the father ends with a warning. He said, hearken unto me, therefore, O ye children, and attend to the words of my mouth. Let not thy heart decline to her ways. Go not astray in her path, for she hath cast down many wounded. Yea, many strong men have been slain by her. Her house is the way to hell, going down to the chambers of death. Pay attention. Don't get caught up. Because I have seen it, son. She has been destroyed by, I mean, many have been destroyed by her. What do you mean? Many wounded. Many folks have taken blows, have been hurt, and I have seen them knocked down. Strong men have been slain. The most powerful warriors have been destroyed by a woman in the flattery of her tongue. In her house, it ain't a house to pleasure. It ain't a house to fun. It ain't a house to a night of enjoyment. It's it's the way to hell. Going down to the chambers of death. You entering into the place where you're going to be locked down and destroyed in death, in destruction. And that's just the end of the story. And we get this picture of how a young man can be enticed to something of pleasure, but the end of it is destruction. And now the thing that we're going to meditate on, especially going forward as we end this section, because we see a parallel here. In the earlier chapters, he was talking about a woman, and that was woman who? Wisdom. And now he then gave this long story about a man that then got caught up with this other woman. That's this strange woman, this horse woman, this adulterous woman. And so the question that we started with earlier is understanding these expressions. How deep is the metaphor? And that's the question we're going to play with next week in chapters 8 and 9. How deep is the metaphor? And what is it that we can glean if we just meditate on this conception and this relationship that this young man got caught up with this strange woman that applies to all of our lives? Anybody got any questions? Go ahead.